Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is where you are listening right now. Greetings to uh, listeners in Ukraine this morning. Um, I know that surprises some of you, but yep, that's true. People listening all around the world. So let's be lifting each other up today in prayer. Let's be recognizing um, that although we might just be greeting this day, this day is already more than half over in other places um, where people are listening right now. So good day to you. Good evening to some of you. It's the last day of March. Whatever that means in your family and my family, that means uh, happy birthday, mom. That's right. Happy birthday, mom. So there you go. Little Ruth Ann was born 84 years ago today. Don't you just know that Robina and Holland were thrilled when she arrived? Um, I know they were. She's a delight. Keeping in mind that um, our parents were once the children welcomed into happy homes is a this is a good legacy thought for the day. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is in the crosshairs of progressive members of Congress, including Minnesota's Betty McCallum. Uh, she, among others, uh, calling for Justice Thomas to resign or be impeached. Why is that? Well, he um, it's not because he's a, a black conservative on the Supreme Court. No, no. It's because his wife, who also happens to be uh, politically active and conservative, is being questioned in relationship to text messages she exchanged with Mark Meadows, the then chief of staff of the White House, in relationship to the outcome of the 2020 presidential election and, yes, the events of January the 6th. So all of that is an ongoing conversation. Um, The conversation that I think I want us to be aware of is exactly what governs judicial disqualifications. It's not that your spouse might be politically active in ways that um, some other people don't appreciate. Nope. The statute that governs judicial disqualifications is Section 255, uh, Title 28 of the U.S. Code. No, I didn't come up with that myself. I borrowed this um, from others who did that research. Uh, And it actually addresses the recusal of justices or judges based on a spouse's potential connection to matters in litigation. So the triggers that are involved are financial or legal. Um, They have to have some connection to the matter as an attorney. And so uh, Jenny Thomas's conservative political activism, including uh, text messages, that she exchanged with Mark Meadows about the 2020 election, they don't activate those triggers in the uh, in Section 255 of Title 28 of the U.S. Code. So there's no actual legal reason to be calling for um, a Supreme Court justice to resign or be impeached based on the political opinions or even the political activism of their spouse. Jenny Thomas has publicly explained 
um, that she and her husband maintain a, quote, wall of separation regarding their respective professional lives. They avoid conflicts of interest by avoiding conflict in relationship to these things. So Justice Thomas does not discuss the court's pending cases with his wife, and she does not involve her husband in her political activities. So they um, they maintain this wall of separation. And for those who would say, you know, roll their eyes and say, that's just not possible. Married people can't do that. Okay. Married people do this all the time. We take our responsibilities seriously. We care about not only protecting our spouse, but respecting other people and institutions and the collateral damage that um, that can occur when we don't respect those lines. I mean, married couples do this all the time. Having a politically active husband or wife is simply not disqualifying for a judge or or anyone else. All right. So when you hear calls for the resignation of Clarence Thomas because of the political activism of his wife, uh, I I just want to encourage you to recognize that there's a process underway nationally that is highly political um, and that most of these calls are related to politics. For those of us who are lawyers, judges, doctors, corporate executives, members of the media, pastors, counselors, members of the military, anyone in government who has an intelligence uh, clearance uh, uh, that's classified or above, we all understand and live this separation reality every single day. So if you have a member of Congress who's barking for the resignation of a Supreme Court justice, you might want to um, inform them that Section 555 of Title 28 of the U.S. Code is actually the law they should be looking at not just uh, the politics of the day. All right, my rant about that is over. <clears throat> um, up next, we're going to talk about the play of abortion in, in U.S. law across the country. Ben Johnson and I are going to do a deep dive on one subject today. Normally, he and I try to cover a range of headlines. Today, one subject, abortion in America. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ben Johnson is a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can find what he's writing at dailywire.com. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. All right, let's talk about abortion access and abortion law in America. I'd love to ask the question, is it constitutional, Um, which I suspect is the question the Supreme Court is actually asking. Uh, They certainly are going to be dealing with that. There's no question that they're going to be revamping uh, their constitutional jurisprudence when it comes to abortion. Uh, Obviously, that was said in 1973 by the Roe v. Wade decision, and it was an act that uh, is, is basically just pure invention. Uh, it's a pure act of legislation from the bench where um, the court had built upon itself several cases in a row where they said that the Constitution does not mean what the Constitution says. There are certain, certain rights that are implied by the Constitution, but that aren't actually written there. And you have to have a law degree in order to understand them. Ideally, you should be one of the nine people on the Supreme Court. Their exact language uh, is, is almost ludicrous. They said that uh, within the Bill of Rights and all of the enumerated rights of the Constitution, there are penumbras uh, of 
of those rights. And outside of those rights, there are emanations from those penumbras that deal with the rights as they are actually lived out. So uh, they alone have the ability to figure out what is a penumbra and an emanation and whether it applies. And ultimately, they said there is a right to privacy. That right to privacy has a sexual privacy right. And under that sexual privacy right, emanating out of that sexual privacy right is the right to an abortion. Now, obviously, none of this is in the Constitution. The Constitution says, both in the Fifth Amendment and in the Fourteenth Amendment, that we have no right for the government to take anyone else's life or liberty or property without due process of law. So that is, one person cannot harm another innocent person. The, the person who is being affected must have done something that renders them guilty and worthy of the death penalty. Obviously, an unborn child has not done that. So we're going to be revisiting that jurisprudence. Uh, I would love to see someone like Amy Coney Barrett and, and Justice Thomas, uh, whom we were just discussing, uh, who is being targeted specifically for this reason, uh, not so much the other cases that are being discussed, but because of this case. Uh, they want him to recuse himself because he would make the argument that there is an inalienable right to life and it is recognized by the Constitution. My guess would be it'll probably fall somewhere along the lines of uh, what Brett Kavanaugh has said on this. Kavanaugh has said that the Constitution is silent on the matter of abortion. It does not, it is not pro life, nor is it pro choice. It is up to the states to regulate that issue. And so ultimately, if Roe is overturned, this will simply go back to the states. And then we're going to have a massively uh, reordered jurisprudence and a different legal system where in some states uh, there will be uh, no abortion, whatever. In other states, it will be funded compulsorily by taxation uh, and promoted. So we'll have a totally different uh, checkerboard of laws all over the United States. Penundrums and emanations. Penundrum, P-E-N-U-M-B-R-A-S, or that's the plural, penundrums. So P-E and then numbra. I don't know, numbra's not a word either. Penumbrum, penumbra, and then emanations, E-M-A-N-A-T-I-O-N. Penumbras and emanations. Yeah, because we needed some words of the day on Mornings with Carmen. We're going to continue this conversation with Ben Johnson. We're going to talk about um, the patchwork of laws across the country right now at the state level in anticipation of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We are talking about abortion and access to abortion in the United States of America. We're doing a deep dive today with Ben Johnson. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. Um, Let me just read a few things from um, both The New York Times, which has a tracker on what's happening across the country, as well as The Washington Post. According to those two sort of abortion law trackers, here's some of the um, here's some of the current developments. Arizona uh, Governor Doug Ducey signed a bill that acts as a near total ban on abortions in that state after 15 weeks. The Florida legislature passed a similar 15 week ban in early March. Oklahoma uh, passed through a Senate committee a bill that would prohibit abortion starting 30 days after the probable start of a woman's last menstrual cycle. That's that's that one's pretty specific Um, in Kentucky. 
The state's House and Senate have approved a 15-week ban that also restricts access to medication abortion. A whole different subject we should be talking about makes it more difficult for a minor to obtain an abortion or order abortion drugs over the Internet um, and and perform, you know, a do-it-yourself abortion at home via a chemical uh, medication abortion. In Idaho, abortion providers are asking the state's Supreme Court to strike down the state's new six-week abortion ban, um, which uh, I think is patterned after the law in Texas. That law also um, allows, this one in, in Idaho, also allows individual citizens to not only bring lawsuits against medical uh, professionals who perform abortions, but the Idaho statute goes even further, providing the possibility of a minimum of $20,000 financial award to family members who would sue, including the sibling of the preborn child. So on and on and on and on. Um, on the other side of the con- uh, conversation, several states, uh, including California, Vermont, and New Jersey, have moved to enshrine a right to abortion in their states and, as Ben mentioned, require taxpayers to pay for them. Um, what, did, what did I miss and what else should we be talking about, Ben? Well, you did a wonderful overview of what's happening in the states. And by the way, I understand that we could have Supreme Court decisions handed down as early as 10 a.m. today. I don't know that wow. that will be with the Dobbs case, but we, we could have some Supreme Court decisions coming out. Uh, so we'll keep our eyes on that. The 15-week uh, ban that you're talking about is very much based on this Supreme Court case, uh, Dobbs, which is uh, going on right. You know, it has has been heard. The decision is going to be forthcoming fairly shortly, and we believe that that is going to revamp uh, the the case that life should be protected for reasons other than viability. Uh, under Roe, the only restriction that could be could be placed is if the child is viable outside the womb, then the child has the right to some kind of protection. And the state of Mississippi said, maybe there are other reasons we should protect life. Maybe life is valuable in- inherently. So that's that's what's uh, the impetus behind a lot of this. On the other side of the conversation, as you're mentioning, in Colorado, for example, there is a, a bill, and there's been a lot of uh, coverage about this. Colorado wants to become a, a refuge for abortion access, is the language that the media are using. A refuge. And if you look at the, the way that the media cover this, I think it's very important. For example, the Washington Post article that you're talking about has a wonderful tracker. Uh, it's, it's very informative. But it's interesting because it color codes whether, the, whether it's what we would call pro-life or, or pro-abortion. But instead of using those terms, they talk about uh, and the exact language uh, in one of the articles is uh, about abortion restrictions or protections. And the restrictions, of course, are pro-life laws that protect unborn children. The protections are restrictions on the unborn and whether they're allowed to live or not. So it's an upside-down coverage. And it's it's part of the way that they shape their, the worldview of those who are reading uh, through a model of bias to tell you that pro-life laws are restricting you and that abortion laws that favor and promote abortion are somehow liberating you. Uh, that's the big lie that's behind abortion from the very beginning. So that's important. Uh, as for what the country will look like, uh, I wrote an article for the Daily Wire back, um, I guess, was several months ago called What Actually Happens If Roe v. Wade is Overturned? And we, in that article, I go through every state law and the way that uh, the state laws would change. There are 12 states that pass trigger laws so that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, then life would be protected instantly at that moment. These laws would take place the moment that they are legally capable of protecting life. There are eight other states that had laws on the books uh, that regulated abortion before Rome, 
And even though Roe struck those laws down, they didn't repeal them. So if Roe is overturned, then these laws would go back into effect. So you, in some cases, they're complete. In some cases, they have loopholes, but in some cases, very broad loopholes. But those would go forward. And then there are at least 13 states plus the District of Columbia, which are going on the other side and trying to strike down any and all restrictions on abortion. Uh, should that come about that uh, uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned, they would say, we do not recognize any restriction. Our Constitution specifically forbids it. Uh, in fact, there is a move in the state of Colorado in a few years to um, put a fundamental right to an abortion in the Constitution and enshrine it as a state constitutional right. So that's the state of play right now. About 26 states want to restrict, which means we are the majority. There are a minority of states uh, but that are very outspoken, tend to be very large with large urban areas, which tend to be more liberal than the rest of the country. In California, New York, where they want to enshrine this as a constitutional right to take the life of another human in, human being who has not violated uh, any any law or statute. And that's that's essentially the way that it would play out if Roe v. Wade is overturned and the Fifth or the Fourteenth Amendment is not invoked. All right. So um, for people who um, just got up and are thinking that they would like to revisit that material, um, they can listen again to to our conversation um, at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app. But where can they find the article that you're talking about? Yeah, at uh, dailywire.com, and the name of the article is What Actually Happens If Roe v. Wade is Overturned? What Actually Happens If Roe v. Wade is Overturned? At the daily wi- at dailywire.com. Um, okay, that is super helpful um, because I think that that's, you know, Ben, that's the kind of thing we need help with, right? That's totally 100% the kind of thing we need help with. Um, all right, penundrum, pen, I obviously want penumbra to be a word, but it's not. Penumbra. And emanations, words of the day brought to you by Ben Johnson and the letter A. And, and Harry Blackman, who uh, somehow managed to shoehorn them into the Constitution. So uh, that's that's a real act of, uh, of uh, jurisprudential ledger domain, uh, shall we say. You know, it, it's amazing that uh, they're... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jurisprudential ledger domain? What? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I'm sorry. Winner! <laughs> so, is there like a class in law school where you just where you just like learn words that other people don't know? Is that oh, is that uh, a class? It, it, that, that's part of the uh, that's part of the entire scholarly uh, artifact mm. is, is to put mm-hmm. on these words and and if you know the vocabulary, then uh, you come across as though you're very intelligent. If you actually mm-hmm. listen to people, if you know the vocabulary and you decode them. You realize when people are giving academic presentations, these people are not that bright. <laughs> so, right. Sometimes uh, just using words because they're words that, yeah, but I won't try because I'm going to mispronounce them and surely use them inappropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny, though, you know, the, the use of these words uh, gives a, a sort of a, a verbal fig leaf to these new concepts that are being brought into our Constitution that have been there now since 1973, almost 50 years, where uh, you know, people are now saying Roe v. Wade has been the law of the land. It's been there for 50 years. We can't possibly overturn it. And yet they had no problem overturning 150 years of pro-life laws before that. And an understanding of the right to life that went all the way back to the Declaration of Independence and ultimately through that to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments that says, thou shalt do no murder. 
Yeah, I was going to say, um, yeah, there's a there's a there's a presidential law uh, that we should be discussing here. Um, and it mm-hmm. is the precedence of God um, saying what God has said about the value, dignity and sanctity of human life. So let's leave it right there, Ben. That is so helpful. Um, you are wonderful. All right. Dailywire.com, the article you're looking for, what actually happens if Roe v. Wade is overturned? Ben Johnson is um, is the author And he and I will both be tweeting it out so that um, you can more easily get it. Ben, as always, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carmen. Have a great day and God bless. You too. All right. Penumbras and emanations and other big fancy words. All right. No more of that. Simple words going forward here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So sometimes um, people who are listening to the show engage with me on the text line. You can do so as well. Several people have already checked in today. You can text me at 877-933-2484. And sometimes people check in regularly and, you know, they offer comment and commentary and we get involved in a conversation and then it turns into a conversation where we actually talk to each other and then they end up on the show. That's what's about to happen. So uh, I met uh, Reverend Dr. Robert Castro over the text line at 877-933-2484. And then we had occasion to exchange some emails. And then we had occasion to meet and speak in person. Um, And I thought, you know what? I want to um, bring Robert on the show to talk about some things. He has some experiences in, in Latvia, which is one of the Baltic countries, um, and that conversation is relevant to what's going on in Ukraine. He also um, has a teaching that he did uh, really out of his experience as a trial lawyer, like putting the whole resurrection of Jesus on trial and seeking to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus really did rise from the dead. So we're going to talk about both of those subjects up next. Robert Castro. Yeah, somebody just like you and me who listens every day to Mornings with Carmen. He's up next. Dr. Robert Castro joins us now. He's a daily listener. I've gotten to know he and his wife through a number of avenues over the past couple of years. He was a trial attorney before becoming a pastor. We could be talking today about, oh gosh, a whole range of topics. Um, But I want to ask Robert specifically about a couple of things, including his experience in the Baltic nation of Latvia. Um, He's been engaged in ministry there since 2005, teaching alternative preaching methods to pastors to help connect with younger worshipers and also working there with teenagers and young adults and on some of the challenges that they face in reaching out to their peers in this postmodern or post-Christian, post-truth culture. Robert, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's great to be on with you. All right. It's really super fun. Let's talk. Let's start with this question. Um, Why do you listen to Mornings with Carmen? I listened to Mornings with Carmen because when I first listened, I was fairly astounded at not only how much knowledge and information you brought to bear, but how balanced your approach was regarding very difficult, complicated um, issues. 
All right. Well, you're so kind, and I love the way that um, you engage with me on the text line. I totally appreciate um, how you're often bringing something from C.S. Lewis uh, to the conversation. Uh, and so I just, it's just on and on. You're, you're always um, shooting me a relevant Bible verse and, uh, and bringing your experience to bear. And so it makes it feel much more like a real conversation to me. So thank you for engaging with me personally in that way. Um, you have been offering a presentation to help Christians come to grips with the massive cultural changes that have taken place um, in the past, I'll say, 50 to 70 years. A um, lot of people in the church are still kind of living in like 1954. And yes. you're trying to help um, folks like see the shifts, like actually point to um, those shifts. Um, and you've had occasion to share that presentation in a number of environments, both here in the United States and around the world. Can you just talk a little bit about the basics of that presentation, just the, the some of the basics, uh, the, the shifts that you point to in those conversations? Sure. One of the one of my um, theses in the presentation is that the reason the church is having as much trouble as it is um, with change and adaptation is there's a lack of appreciation of how drastic the cultural shift has been. That if we as congregations and districts can understand the drastic nature of the shift, we'll be more willing to consider a drastic response. And so I take the teachings of um, not just C.S. Lewis, but uh, Dr. Leonard Sweet, who's been on your show, uh, John Lennox, one of the great apologists of our day, and try to boil those teachings down and make them accessible for people on a congregational level so that they can see the shift and then be better positioned to respond to it. My passion is to help retain young people, uh, teens and young adults in the life of the church. So um, C.S. Lewis, John Lennox, Leonard Sweet, yeah, those are some of my favorites as well. I mean, this is part of why you and I resonate in conversation with each other, because we do, you know, we, we have a similar um, worldview um, that grows out of our love of God, our the high value we place on Scripture, um, the the understanding that we are people under authority. Um, and so one of the things that you talk about is, it, it, well, are all those things, right? The, the erosion of a biblical worldview, the fact that, you know, our very perspective on things has become centered on self instead of God or on autonomy instead of authority. Can you just take us into any one of the shifts that you point to and walk us around in it? I want to say how much I appreciate the book that came out by Alyssa Childers, who was interviewed by you as well. And I'm following her online because she's doing such a good job in apologetics. And her focus is basically my focus. Uh, her focus is progressive Christianity and the challenges faced by progressive Christianity. Um, one of the really important books that came out fairly recently is a book from a professor in Princeton called Almost Christian, who addressed um, spirituality among teens and young adults. And so what I've been sharing is the impact of progressive Christianity on teens and young adults in our culture and ways that we can address that as the church. The basic premise is our message never changes but our method has to. 
given the changes that have taken place in our culture. Postmodernism is a language, and it's a language that the church is not speaking. And uh, I use my Latvia um, experience as an example. When I first went to Latvia in 1992, I'm celebrating my 30th anniversary, uh, everyone spoke Latvian, or sorry, everyone spoke Russian. And now young people today, only about 20 to 25% of young people speak Russian. They're free, they're independent. They're not occupied anymore. And so the only people speaking Russian are people that choose to learn it. Modernism is a language that the church speaks. Postmodernism is a language that the culture speaks. And my concern is that the church is simply speaking a language that is not accessible to teens and young adults for the most part in the culture, unless they've specifically chosen to learn it. And so in my presentation, I basically shrug and say, we might as well be doing worship in Latin again. Mm. Right. Because, you know, Martin Luther is one of the guys who points out that the common parlance, the language of the day, the language of the people is actually the language in which the gospel must be presented or people are going to miss the gospel. And we don't want people to miss the gospel. So uh, no exactly. longer do do we, um, you know, have worship in Latin because, frankly, no one speaks Latin anymore. Um, and and Luther, you know, recognized that. So how do we make that shift from speaking Christianese um, and even like 1950s Christianese and words and ideas presented in conversations or even use illustrations that just don't hit the mark of the postmodern mind? Um, so when you say postmodernism is a language, teach us a little of that language today. And that's where the work of Dr. Leonard Sweet is so helpful because he has shared with us his um, a word that he has coined that he uses is narrafor. Um, postmodernism is based upon image and metaphor. And so it is not linear. It is not um, left brain, it is more right brained. And so my doctoral thesis on preaching was an exploration of the opportunities to speak postmodern language, but to share universal objective truth. Because of course, in a postmodern culture, what we're dealing with all the time is that truth is relative and subjective. It is not objective and universal. So the question I explored in my doctoral thesis on preaching is, can we use postmodern language, image, and metaphor in order to express truth that is universal and objective? The message never changes. The method changes all the time. The way Dr. Sweet put that is, I will put the living water into any container from which someone will drink. The living water never changes. Containers have to, because culture has. All right, that might be a really good pull quote um, for the day. Um, when you think about the the vessel um, of the time in which we live, right? Because the living water, you're, I, I love this. I love this conversation about the living water. Um, the water is is good um, and life giving. Um, no matter where we live, no matter what generation we're in, no matter the circumstances of the day and time. Um, and so take us maybe now to Latvia. Um, you've been going there for a long time. Take us there today. Um, for people who aren't even, you know, particularly good at geography, 
Where is it? Um, and what are some of the questions that people there are asking? Um, yeah, the best way I can describe geographically is everybody knows where Scandinavia is. And <laughs> if you hold up your hand, Finland is the thumb. Which hand? Finland, which hand? Which which hand am um, I holding up? My right hand or my left if hand? If you hold up your right hand mm-hmm. and point your fingers to the left, your thumb is pointing down. Mm-hmm. That's yes, Scandinavia. That. If you mm. follow the thumb, which is Finland, straight south across the Baltic Sea, you'll find three Baltic pan uh, three Baltic countries stacked like pancakes. Latvia is the one in the middle. Um, Estonia is to the north. Lithuania is to the south. And Latvia is in the middle. Um, so Russia borders Latvia to the east, which makes that a major issue. And currently with what's going on in Ukraine, my sense is that many of my Latvian friends do not understand why we are not sending um, manned equipment into Ukraine to stop this. Um, yeah, that's not what alone. I'm seeing a lot that, on Facebook. <laughs> they're not alone. They're not alone. So how are you and, answering them? Um, I basically, I, I want them to understand, and I'm going to be there um, in a month on May 3rd. And so I'm looking forward to my 31st trip to the country of Latvia over 30 years. And I need them to understand that while we may be ready to participate in World War III, we are not going to start it. Mm. And it needs to matter that Ukraine is not a NATO country. That needs to make a difference. Um, I've been I've been blessed to meet U- United States airmen in Old Riga during my visits and thank them not only for their service, but for their service to the country of Latvia. I've been at the Independence Day parade for Latvia, where the U.S. tank cavalry participated in the Latvian Independence Day parade as they patrol the eastern borders of the country of Latvia. It matters that Latvia is a NATO country. And I feel very safe being in Old Riga um, next month in May, knowing that the United States Army stands between me and Moscow. Mm. And so we will defend Latvia as a NATO country. We can't provide that same level of commitment to a country that is not NATO. Otherwise, what's the difference? What's the point of being NATO? So they're nervous so, because they were so- occupied for 50 years by Russia. Yeah, no, I think there's no question that, um, yeah, any, I mean, an inch, an inch into NATO territory, um, you know, the literal cavalry comes uh, comes to bring the full power of every NATO country to bear. Um, I do think, I do think that, you know, there are a lot of people asking the question, okay, well, you know, it's one inch away, like Ukraine, Ukraine is one inch away from NATO territory. Um, yep. And I did. I mean, I heard the. Um, oh, John Kirby, I heard him say yesterday, you know, this is for us much more about reinforcing the eastern flank than it is about making sure that no part of Ukraine becomes a part of Russia. Like it, so um, there there is a geopolitical conversation happening um, and it is hard. Uh, it is hard to watch. And as people die, it's just really hard to watch as people die. And I'm sure that one of the questions I'm going to get when I arrive 
is um, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, um, and people in Africa, of course, are already asking the question, Absolutely. Um, what about us? Yeah. All right, Robert, we got to take a very brief break because you know how this works because uh, you listen every day. Um, so we're yes, talking with Robert Castro. Um, he is a pastor. He's also um, an attorney. And so one of the conversations that um, I want to have with him as we approach Holy Week and Easter uh, is if he would share with us this unique approach that he has as a trial lawyer to proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Then bursting forth in glorious We're talking with Reverend Dr. Robert Castro. He's also an attorney. I know he's the fancy pants with lots of degrees, um, but he's also just a regular guy. And that's one of the things I love most about him. Um, he offers a presentation. It's a very unique approach um, as a trial lawyer, proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. So as we approach Holy Week and then Easter Robert, I'm wondering if you can give us um, a, a little bit of an, of an experience of that presentation here. Thank you, Carmen. Uh, Lent is actually a perfect time to talk about this because it was in the early spring of 2008 that the Zeitgeist movie first released online. And my son made me aware of the Zeitgeist movie because he had been told by a friend to watch it. And for those who may not know, the Zeitgeist movie was a two-hour movie uh, that was presented only on zeitgeistmovie.com and spent the first 45 minutes attacking Christianity and demonstrating through their false information that um, Jesus never existed, the apostles never existed, and that Christianity is made up. So my comment to my son was that in the end, it is all going to depend upon the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus happened, then it's all nonsense. If the resurrection didn't happen, then anything is possible. So I began researching uh, the resurrection through various sources, evidence that demands a verdict, and of course, um, the case for Christ. And I actually met with a, a friend from the country of Latvia, who is married to a Lutheran pastor in Wisconsin. And I shared my research with her and she, uh, I told her that one of the sources was a jurist in England who made the statement, there is sufficient evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in any courtroom in the world. And Inta said, you need to write that argument. You need to make that case. And so I took up that challenge and did the research. And in a criminal case where the evidence must establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, the prosecution goes first, and it can take days for the prosecution to make their case. Then the defense can go, and that can take a day or two. And then there's closing arguments. The closing argument for the state can take most of a day. And the defense can respond to that. Then there is a rebuttal. The rebuttal is by the prosecution because they bear the burden of proof. And the rebuttal argument is a summary only that takes about 20 minutes. So my presentation is the rebuttal, responding 
to the defendant's position that the resurrection didn't happen and summarizing all the evidence that the jury has heard over the last several days, the proving that the resurrection actually happened beyond a reasonable doubt. And as a lawyer, I was able to actually incorporate jury instructions um, in talking to the jury and the jury. And of course, the jury is the congregation. The jury are the people that come for the presentation. They make up the jury and I am making my closing argument directly to them as the jury. All right. So, um, yeah. So people want to to hear it and want to experience it. And I'm one of those people who knows that... um, Maybe it's not available easily online. So could we explore a way um, to have you present it? Um, I mean, I'm brainstorming here. Um, Like maybe we could do a Facebook Live event and invite, you know, invite the Mornings with Carmen and the Faith Radio crowd to join us, Facebook Live and YouTube, and you could make the presentation. How long would it take? It is a it is between twenty and twenty two minute presentation. Oh, oh yeah, no, we could totally do that. I was going to give you an hour, so <laughs> you can go slow. You don't have to be fast. <laughs> well, but I think that would be questions. Oh, now so that would be great. Okay, so the jury is going to be allowed to ask questions after the fact. Yeah, see, That's originally when we did this, it was an hour. The way we set this up was, um, I did my presentation, and then a local pastor uh, would do a about a 20 minute presentation on the um, centrality of the resurrection to the Christian faith in, as a whole. Mm. And then I have a, a very good friend and teammate in the country of Latvia who is an international expert in cults and world religions. He's literally taught me almost everything I know about cults and world religions. And what Jim Valentine of Karis did was then he took the last segment and he explained what other religions say regarding the resurrection of Jesus taught, uh, from the perspective of different faiths. How did they address the claim that Jesus rose from the dead? So the presentation itself landed, lasted just over an hour. But my part was a 20 to 22 minute legal argument. I love that. All right. Um, people are liking this idea. I'm definitely liking this idea. So um, can we work on this? Can we work on making oh, this yeah, happen? Oh, yeah, for sure. I yeah, would basically, totally love that. I, have a, I have the digital presentation, and it's been a while since I've done it. I don't have the transcript anymore. So basically what I would end up doing is transcribing my presentation yeah. so that I could make that exact presentation again. All right. Well, I, I, might, I might be able to find you some help on that. Um, all right. So, uh, Robert, as always, thank you so much for the time we're spending together today. We did it a little bit differently today than um, than on a normal day, but I love that we spend this time together every single day. Um, thank you for your contributions every day um, to this program, because it's not just the way that you've engaged today; it's the way that you engage every single day. Texting um, at you know, texting me at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four, sending me encouraging emails. I know that you're praying for me. Um, it's just. Um, you're a part of this. And so thanks today for jumping on and sharing so much um, of what God is doing in and through you to advance his kingdom in the world. I just, I love it. And, and I love you. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, Carmen. It's fun. And Paul, as we know, Paul does a great job of choosing music. 
Aww. Oh, yeah. Paul's the glue. <laughs> Paul's the glue, man. All right. Um, we got to take uh, one more very brief break in this hour. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Now I'm a- Um, today, how then shall we live today? How then shall we live as people who know the truth in a world where so many people don't? Um, how are we going to live as people of order in a world of such chaos? How are we going to live as people of light in a world of such darkness? Well, that's exactly how we're going to live. We're going to live as people of truth and people of faith and people of light and people of life because we're going to live as Christ people in the world today. We are the people of Christ. And that not only forms and informs, but dictates how we live. So as you're approaching this day and you're wondering how you're going to make it through, how you're going to hold on, how you're going to resist, how you're going to um, lay claim You're going to do it as Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit, on his behalf, to his glory, acknowledging that he has already overcome the world. He is life and he is light, and so are you. This is Mornings with Carmen. We've got another hour. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.